As Daryl continues to play, I want to read. I want to read a confessional prayer. And I'm going to read it from my heart, but I'd like for you to read it from your heart as well. And I want to read it together out loud. Instead, I'd rather you just kind of look at the words. You may pray them over under your breath, in your heart, in your own mind. But would you, would you look at this prayer on the screen as I read it? And we begin this time of the message in confession. Can we do that? Dear Father, my sin is ever before me. I have desired control and that has only produced fear. I have desired power over others and that has only served to alienate them from me. I have desired my own comfort and that has only brought forth anger when my comfort was not achieved. I have sought the approval of others and have meticulously kept them from seeing my true self for fear of rejection. Idolatry plagues my heart. I am consumed with thoughts of self-glorification, self-promotion and self-service. In my deepest parts, I doubt that you are God and I want to rule myself. I cry out to you, Father. Only you can deliver me. Show me the cross. For without Jesus' glorious robe of righteousness to cover my nakedness, I'll die. Show me the love of my beautiful, beautiful Savior who gave up his glory and even his life that I might be delivered from idolatry. And may the work of Jesus ever stir me towards radical, joyful obedience. May he be my reason for living and my eternal source of joy, hope, faith, and love. Amen. I thought it would be appropriate for us to start this time just with a prayer of confession. Thanks, Daryl. This was written by Pastor Tim Keller in New York. And I looked at different prayers from different places, and I thought about writing my own, and this one just seemed to really capture what I wanted us to how I wanted us to pray and think this morning. You know, we've been in this life series for a couple of months now, and we've talked about what it means to live a life in Jesus. Jesus said in John 10, 10, that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to bring you life and life more what? Abundantly. And so our thought on this is the way we're going to have an abundant life in Jesus is when we know him more. When we spend more time with him, when our lives look more like his, we're going to have an abundant life in Jesus, right? Well, I don't know if you notice this or not, but it's kind of hard. And it doesn't just happen when we're saved, when God changes our hearts and changes our lives. We don't just automatically turn into these perfect people, do we? At least I didn't. <laughs> and so we have to place these things in our lives called spiritual disciplines that lead us to knowing him more, that lead us to being more obedient, that lead us to more life in Jesus. We've been in this series. We've, I don't even remember I mentioned, this series is kind of broken up into three subcategories, right? There's inward disciplines. There's outward disciplines. The inward disciplines are things like prayer, right? Fasting. Outward disciplines, are, you may remember, things like service. Thank you, Paul, by the way, for sharing last week. Um, things like submission or, or um, 
Solitude, outward submission, outward uh, disciplines. Well, then the third category is corporate disciplines. Corporate disciplines. In other words, God has designed this walk with him at some level to only be done in community. It can't be done just inwardly or outwardly from your own life. It has to be done together as the body of Christ. And today is our first message in the first discipline of a corporate nature. Talking about confession, the discipline of confession. Our confession before God, right? Our private confession before God and our confession before the body. Some of you go, what? (laughs) It's a little scary, isn't it? Just even the thought is a little scary. But when we look at the early church, we don't see fear. We see this as just a normative part of of life among the believers uh, in Jesus. And I will be honest with you, if we can be faithful to this discipline, church, if we can figure out a way to do this privately and publicly with a community that loves us, this will determine our authenticity in Jesus. If we can truly grasp the value of this and walk it out in our private and public lives, this will determine our authentic lives before Jesus and before people. It really will, really will. You know, the thing that's confusing to me, I'll be honest with you, is this. As Christians, we know what our story is, don't we? I mean, we know when we, we explain to somebody maybe who doesn't understand the gospel or doesn't know, what, what do Christians believe anyway? Well, it basically boils down to the fact that we are sinners, right? We get that much. And we are rescued by a Savior. He gave his life on the cross and his death on the cross, the blood of Jesus cleanses, forgives us as sinners, right? So there's really no confusion really typically in the church of what our story is. We're sinners and he's a Savior. We need a Savior and yet somehow, somewhere we act like we don't have sin anymore. Have you noticed that in the church? Almost like when God saved us, he just took away the temptation for sin. Oh, not me. No, no. At least that's the way it feels sometimes in the church, that we don't deal with these real struggles, these real issues. And the reality is we do. We know we do. We all do. Yet we carry on as if we have no sin. You know, he, he took away the penalty of our sins. But he left us in these, what the Bible calls, jars of clay, right? These flesh, fleshly bodies, and we still struggle. We still struggle. We still sin, but we don't act like it. Often we think that, um, and we've talked about this before, we think, I think, I don't know that we would actually communicate it this way, but sometimes we live as if we're just these little bubbles, and we just barely touch each other, bubbles, and just don't, you can't look into my life, but we'll just be this sort of just exterior, you know, we'll just have this level of cordiality. We'll just smile and act like everything's fine. No, I'm fine. I'm good. And then what you hear these things about friends or people in church, they did what? What happened to their marriage? What, they're where? And all of a sudden it's a surprise that actually, guess what? We're sinners struggling. Jesus saves us and he pays the penalty for that sin. But the rest of our lives, we are walking in sanctification, coming to know him, coming to love him, coming to serve him more. And so instead of pretending like we don't, what if we walked in here? 
What if you walked into your small groups and you were literally able to fall into the arms of each other in broken, authentic community because you know that you're struggling? Can you imagine how beautiful that would be? If we literally could just fall into each other's arms figuratively and literally. But instead, this is what we do. We hold each other at arm's length, don't we? Oh, you don't need to know my life. Don't look over here. Don't look in here. I was thinking about this. How cool would it be if I could just pray a prayer as one of the pastors of South City and just say, Lord, I, I, I pray that this week, all the people that, are, that hear my voice in this room today, as they begin to think uh, self-righteous, condemning thoughts about other people, or as they go to say something about somebody else, Lord, would you turn that around like a mirror on their own soul? Can you imagine? And so all of a sudden we begin to have, and we all do it. You have this thought of, oh, I heard that I've really been struggling with that sin again. It just turns around on us. Or instead of thinking, you may actually go to say something, say, man, have you heard the level of wit, uh, the level of my own sin? It's so deep. It's so broken. It's so exhaustive. What if the Holy Spirit turned those thoughts around on our own souls and instead of focusing, hyper-focusing on somebody's speck in their own eye, we're beginning to deal with the plank in ours. And we own it. And we own it. Dallas Willard, the book that we've been kind of going through, some of you have been reading through the Spirit of the Disciplines. He says, confession alone makes deep fellowship possible. Confession alone makes deep fellowship possible possible. And the lack of it explains much of the superficial quality so commonly found in our church associations. Just this discipline of confession gives us the opportunity to go deeper with each other and deeper with Jesus. And we wonder, why well, it seems like the church is kind of surface or that group over there, they seem kind of surface. Well, how are they sharing their lives? Are they sharing their lives in a confessional way? Listen, I believe it is, it is the desire of God for us to live confessionally before him and before each other. I'm not saying it's easy, but I am saying it is God's will for us. It is a discipline that we need to get. This is a part of our lives that we need to understand and live out and live it out. The very first step that I think we need to take in living a confessional life is this. We've got to know our sin. We have to know our sin. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 3, verse 6? <clears throat> We've read this story, and we'll read it again. But I, I want to read it this morning, and I want to focus on verse 7 specifically. But let's read from verse 6 in chapter 3. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. No, no, pay attention to this verse. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We've read this before. You've heard this before, right? We, we know the story. 
But I want us to focus on verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew they were naked. Now listen, Adam and Eve weren't blind. They weren't stumbling around the garden going, no, wait, I think this is the fruit of the, okay, well, this is good. This is a good fruit and, no, no that's a snake. You know, that wasn't happening. That's not what this is speaking about. When it says that they, their eyes were open, it wasn't, it wasn't speaking physically, right? It's speaking spiritually. When they took a bite of this fruit, all of a sudden, their eyes, the eyes of their hearts, their understanding, their spirituality, all of a sudden woke up to the reality that they were dying. Remember what God said in Genesis 2, 17? He shows them the garden and he says, hey, now listen to this rule. This tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of this tree. Remember that? Don't eat of this tree. Because if you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. Surely die. That's what God said. And yet over here in, in chapter 3, now they're considering eating of the fruit. And the enemy says, oh, you're not going to die, but you will be like God. And all of a sudden that appealed to him, didn't it? Oh, hmm. Now they're not trusting God anymore, right? That's the first thing we do. We stop trusting God's word. We stop trusting what he said to do. And we start listening to the enemy or some other voice. And we go, well, I like control. Let's, let me go with that. I like control. And they take a bite of this fruit. And in an instant, they begin to die. They begin to die physically, they begin to die spiritually, and you know what? They understand it because the tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. All of a sudden, as soon as they ate of it, they had a knowledge, an understanding. Their spiritual eyes were opened that there's good and there's evil. And based on their response, guess, guess what side they think they fall on. There's good and there's evil. What side do you think they fall on? Because of their response, they think they're evil. And they know God is good. And they begin to feel their lives and their bodies dying immediately, right? They have this awareness. They have this awareness to their sin. They, they begin to feel shame. Isn't that the process? We don't trust God. We listen to other voices. We sin. And then we begin to feel shame. There's a difference between conviction and shame. Conviction is when God says to your heart, this is not the best way. Would you trust me? Shame is when the enemy says, I can't believe you did that. So they begin to try and cover their shame, says in this chapter 3 here, right? They go and they make loincloths of fig leaves. Now let me just say something. I'm not, I don't make clothes, but fig leaves don't make very good clothes, okay? You sit down, you move a little bit. That's going to be the end of the fig leaf, and we're going to have a, a massive wardrobe malfunction. You know what I mean? They don't make good fig leaves, but that's what we do. We don't trust God's word. We listen to other voices. We sin. We feel shame, and then we feel like we can cover our shame and meet our own need. Isn't that what they did? They tried to meet their own need. And lastly, it says here, they hear God walking in the garden. And they go and hide from his presence, right? They hide from his presence. We do the same thing when we sin. We try and cover our shame and we hide. First step in confessional living, no question, is this. Do you have a good understanding? Are your spiritual eyes open to the knowledge of good and evil? Do you know the truth? Look with me in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. 
says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Listen, if you can't acknowledge sin in your life, if you can't agree with God, yes, Lord, that is sin. This thing I've been doing, this thing that I've been burdened by, I've been convicted by, and I've felt shame over, Lord, these things, that is sin. If you can't agree with God that it's sin, one thing is you're not a, you're not a believer in Jesus. And the second thing is you can't have a confessional life. The very first step in coming to know Jesus is being able to agree, agree with God that what we've done and where we've been and who we've been has been sinful and, and owning it. Lord, I know my sin. I see good and I see evil and I know what side I fall on. I am a sinner and I own my sin. This is me. This is what I've done. I'm guilty. The Bible says if you can't do that, then the truth is not in you and you're deceiving yourself. However, however, if you'll confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Here's the second step in living a confessional life. The name of the message this morning is the truth and nothing but the truth. First thing is knowing the truth. The second thing is confessing the truth. Know it and confess it. Verse 8 in 1 John 1 says, if we'll just admit our sin, if we'll agree with God, we'll acknowledge our sin, if we'll be honest about what's going on, then the truth is in us. And we have a chance to know him and be forgiven and purified from that sin, right? In verse 9, if we confess what's true about us, once we realize, yeah, that's true, I did that and I'm guilty, once we confess that, that what is true about us, our sin, God is faithful and he's just to forgive. Now I want to just pause for a second. This is one of my favorite verses, by the way. I love this verse. When he says he's faithful and just, listen to this. God is faithful. That means that every time you sin, he'll be faithful to forgive you. Is that good? Every time, no matter what, no matter where, no matter how long, no matter how far you are from God, He's faithful to forgive you. And then there's this interesting section, second section says, he's faithful and he's just. You know what that means? We pass over some, some of these things in scripture. It means that he has a legal right to forgive you. We'll read this verse in a minute that David penned in, in the Psalms. He says, God, before you and you alone have I sinned. See, the one we sin against is God. He is our judge. He sits on the throne. He is the only one worthy to forgive your sin. He's the only one just. He's the only one that has the right to forgive. And you know what's so good? When we confess, he'll do it every time he's faithful. And he's the only one that can. He's just. And when we do, he purifies us. He makes it like we never sinned. Praise God. Adam and Eve, <laughs> Adam and Eve hid in their shame. They tried to cover their shame and they hid. But the gospel of Jesus says, know the truth, confess the truth. You know what happens when we confess, 
When we confess the truth of what we know and what we understand and we bring it to the Lord, this is what we're doing. We're coming out of hiding. We're walking out of those trees where we've been hiding, those trees of addiction, of alcoholism and and prescription pain medication and pornography and lying and stealing and cheating and all the things that we've done because we've all done them. We're sinful. We walk out of that forest of hiding and we say, God, I confess. It's like coming out. Confession is, is acknowledging our brokenness. It's a refusal to hide. Confession is a declaration of the truth of who you've been and who you are at the most personal and vulnerable place it can possibly be. And it's you taking ownership. I've got two little girls, 10 and 7. I love being a daddy. I love it. And one of the things I've learned over the last 10 years is that they don't like to admit they're wrong. Have you noticed this about children or yourself? Um, It's obvious, you know, they do something and it's like, oh, this is clearly, they've done this. And you're like, hey, who did the thing? And they'll go, well, there was a, you wouldn't believe the unbelievable stories, right? I mean, they can chase that thing around the block and back around and it was her. And then she sounds like Adam, right? When he said, uh, it was the woman that you gave me. That's, that's what we've got. That's our legacy. We shift blame. And my girls are pretty great at it. And I am too. And we start trying to find all these other places. And the last, I just keep saying, girls, own this. Just say, I did it. Daddy, I did All I want to hear is that you know this is you. That you made this happen. You did this. But listen, at our core, because of Adam and Eve, we don't want to own it. We don't want to say, yeah, I did that. Yes, I'm wrong. Instead, you know what we do? We cover our shame. We come up with every excuse possible. We come up with every cultural reason why the word of God is not true. And maybe it didn't really mean what it meant it said. And we cover our shame and we come up with every little thing instead of just going, God, I'm guilty. And I don't want to hide anymore. I own my sin. I love David. I love uh, David. And I've connected with him all my life. He shows us in such a beautiful way the vulnerability of real heartfelt confession in the Psalms. I want to read three of the, the Psalms that he wrote. This is going to, this is going to be at uh, Psalm thirty-eight, eighteen, And David says, he says, I confess my iniquity. I confess my iniquity, but he didn't stop there, does he? He says, I'm sorry for my sin. Do you see the twofold, the two parts of this? I confess my iniquity, I'm sorry for my sin. You see, I learned a long time ago, maybe I can just say some words and that'll get me what I need to get from God. And it won't. Confession is not a sentence. It's not going to a a little room with a priest and saying, Father, I've sinned. Because remember, that father is not the one that sits on the throne. He sits in a chair. He can't forgive you. And this word penance in the Catholic Church It never even showed up. 600 years after Jesus, it showed up. It comes from the word repentance, which is where we own our sin and we actually change. I confess my iniquity. That's not enough. I'm sorry for my sin. David says this in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. 
I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. I want you to see something here. I want you to contrast Adam and Eve and their response and, and David's response. Can we do that for a second? Do you notice what he says? He says, I did not cover my iniquity, and yet the first thing Adam and Eve did was what? They cover their shame. He says, I'm not going to try and cover it up. God, I'm going to own it. This is me. This is my wrong. This is my sin. I'm not going to cover it. I acknowledge it, and I confess it. And then in probably my favorite psalm, I so identified with this psalm in college because I had such a great struggle with sin in college. Let's read this, Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. I know them. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Clean, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I wanna, that's a, there's so much beautiful goodness in that psalm, but I want to just look at a few things. First thing I notice is authenticity. Do you sense that David means what he's saying? See, this, is, this was written after the prophet Nathan came to David and told him this little parable, this little story. And David realizes, he wakes up to the truth. He is a sinner and he has killed Uriah and he has been in an affair with Bathsheba. And now his heart is broken for the sin in his life. He knows it, he acknowledges it, and he's bringing it before the Lord. And it's heartfelt. This is real. This is David's true response to his God and the truth of who he has been, right? There's brokenness in this prayer. And I want you to notice this. Two things. He says, uh, he says, hide your face from my sins. He doesn't try to hide. Instead, he says, Lord, would you hide your face from my sins? Would you show me mercy? And then he says this. Verse 11, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. What's the thing that Adam and Eve ran from? After they covered themselves, it says they heard God walking in the cool of the day in the garden and they hid from God's presence. And yet David's saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I own all these things. I am wrong. I have sinned and I don't want to cover my iniquity. Please hide your face from my sins. I'm not going to hide. But would you hide your face and your righteousness from my sin? And then he says, please don't make me go away from your presence. Do you see the difference? Do you see what he's modeling for us? Where can we hide anyway? We think God sees in that forest? Do we think he can see? I remember when I was a little kid, when I was like 
eight or nine years old, maybe younger. I remember I used to go to, I don't know what it was called. Maybe, it might have been Steinmark back then, but it was some kind of store. And they had those big circular racks of clothes. You know the ones I'm talking about? That you had to walk all the way around. And Well, in the middle was kind of an empty space. And as a six or seven-year-old, it was awesome. Right? Especially in like the dress section. My mom might be going through there and, and hiding. You remember this, mom? And I would go up under there and I'd hide. And she hated it because she's like, where are you at? You know? I love to hide. We love to hide. God sees us. He sees us hiding. He knows our hiding place. David's saying, listen, I don't, I'm not going to cover this up. I'm not going to hide from your presence, Lord. I'm going to confess it and I'm going to come into your presence. Please don't cast me from it. Here's the third truth that I want us to see this morning in a confessional life. We have to live out the truth in community. You see, knowing the truth, having a good understanding, yes, this is sin and I know it. That's a good thing. And then confessing the truth, Lord, yes, that's wrong and I own it. That is mine. I did it. That's great. Taking responsibility, it's good. But it's also private. It's also private. And how many times have I known my sin and confessed it to the Lord and then a few days later sinned again? Known my sin and confessed my sin and a few days later I did it again. And then known my sin and confessed we get stuck in this rut, but God has designed, go figure. <laughs> He's designed this beautiful life for us to be healed and whole, and it's done in community. That's why this is a corporate discipline. It's not just about private confession and knowing our sin. We have to bring it before others so that we may be healed. They say, uh, I think this is a funny statement, especially in this conversation. They say confession is good for the soul, right? but bad for the reputation. You heard that? Some of you are going, yeah, that's why I have trouble with this. We're so busy protecting our reputation when our relationship with God is gone or empty or meaningless. Our reputations don't matter. Only our relationship with Jesus is all that matters. I'll be honest with you this morning. South City Church, we have, we have a choice to make today. We're young. We're six months old as a church, as a new vision, a new replant. And as we move forward, we have a choice today. We can play it safe, and we can continue to operate in these bubbles of existence where we don't really, we, we don't ever want to pop one of those bubbles and you actually see into my life. Let's just be safe. We have a choice to stay there, or we can take up our cross, and we can bear one another's burdens according to Galatians 6, 2, and we can know each other well enough to be honest with who we already know we are, and we can see the hope of change. When you acknowledge your sin and you bring it for somebody, there's a hope, a hope that, man, in doing this, I hope I can change. I've, I've been doing this privately of confessing and, and knowing, but I haven't changed. So the hope is now that I'm bringing it before a few people, I'm going to change. This is going to be accountability for my life. But make no mistake here, listen. If you don't bring it for other people, you'll never change. Do you hear me? If we keep it to ourselves, if we continue just to think it's just something we can be quiet about in our own souls, listen, we won't change. God has designed it this way for a reason. James 5, 
verse 13. Read this with me on the screen. And I want to start at 13 to give you the full context of what James, the brother of Jesus, is encouraging the church to do. He's encouraging them to pray. And just look at this, how normative, how normal, how nonchalant he is about these encouragements, okay? Hey, is, is anyone suffering among you? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray to one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Some of your translations at the end may say the powerful prayer of a, of a righteous man avails much. It does a lot. Somehow in the church, we've forgotten this verse. We've begun to skip over it and we just go, yeah, maybe not so much that one. Because it's hard. Because it's something we're having to open up ourselves to other people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a martyred pastor and author, wrote an amazing book on the community in the church called Life Together. He says in that book, he says, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. But it is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand that confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner you are to the God who loves you. Isn't that beautiful? And I would add this other little section, come as the sinner you are to the God who loves you and to the people who love you. When we can bear our souls, when we can bear one another's burdens, and trust me, sin in your life is a burden to you. So much so that it can even affect your physical characteristics. It can make you sick. And that's what he's speaking to here. Confess your sins to one another so you're not sick, so that something's not going on, so that you may be healed. There's also an application of this in the early church in Jerusalem where, you know, back in uh, Acts 5, we, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, remember? They hid their sin. They hid this little piece of information, thinking we can just not be completely authentic. Remember that? And what happened? They got zapped, didn't they? They died right on the spot. And so Pastor James is saying, confess your sins one to another. Let's keep it out in the open. Let's be healed. Let's be whole. Let's be strong together. Pray for one another. Come to the Lord as the sinner, the great desperate sinner that you are. Come to the Lord who loves you. Come to the God who loves you and the people who love you. You know, open confession can support right behavior. It doesn't, it doesn't take away the temptation from the one who's struggling. But it adds a layer of accountability that helps. It honestly does. I'll never forget one of my first experiences in uh, this type of a group and this type of confession that was here. And it was over in the Family Life Center in a group. And I remember the leader, he had struggled with alcoholism and he, he would be the first one to tell you, oh, I'm an alcoholic and I struggle with this and that and that. He would make no bones about it because he knew he didn't have to hide. In fact, I remember being blown away with that transparency saying, man, how do you just, how do you just say those things so easily, so quickly? 
Marty Kyle, some of you may remember Marty. He said, what do I have to hide? He said, you know, there's that whole saying about glass houses and all that stuff. He said, man, if I can say to you, I'm, I'm an alcoholic, then you can't go, hey, you're an alcoholic. Oh, yeah, you already said that. There's nothing anybody can say. You already own your stuff. And you go, I'm a mess. And my only hope is Jesus. Now, how do you, how do you insult me? I already know the mess that I am. I'm already confessing it to people who love me. Open confession helps support right behavior. And when we confess to each other, in many cases, we have to change. Because we've, we've made this larger perimeter of people who love us, who pray for us, and who expect something. So the next time we come together and you've confessed, they go, Drew, how, how's that thing going? You mentioned it last week. How, we've been praying about that. How are you doing? And you go, either you're honest again. Uh, didn't, didn't go so well this week. Or, yeah, I'm, I'm doing better. Thank you for your prayers. And the next week, hey, Drew, how are you doing? See, the problem is that's the reason we don't share is because we don't want people to see. We don't want people to know the reality of who we are. And what does that say about what we believe about Jesus? I interviewed for a church in Dallas, pretty big church, and the pastor wanted me to sing a song during their staff meeting, about 140 people in their staff meeting, staff at the church. And so I sang a song, and then I sat down, and the pastor said, hey, you guys know our culture here, you know what we do. And he used this phrase, and I don't know if I'm getting it right, but I, I sort of remember part of it. But he said something like, if authenticity is the goal, transparency is the way. He made some comment like that. And then they even said it back to him. He said it back, and they say, if authenticity is the goal, then transparency is the way. And he, he said, well, let's get going. And he went and sat down. And I'm sitting there with my wife going, what does that mean? I don't know, what are, we, what are we doing? I'm looking around. And people one by one begin to stand up and confess sin in their lives. I'd never seen it in my life like that in such a, in a group this size, bigger. And we were sitting in a, in a circle. And they begin, guys begin to stand up and say, hey, man, you guys know that I've struggled with pornography and I'm struggling again. Would you pray for me? Or a girl would stand up and say, hey, I've been dating my, my boyfriend. We're struggling with premarital sex. Would you please pray for us? We don't want to dishonor God. Would you pray? I couldn't believe the level of transparency and honesty. And the pastor gets back up and he says, let me remind you of why we do this. 2 Corinthians 12, 8 says, this is, this is uh, Paul praying and, and, and saying this about the thorn in his flesh. He says, three times I've pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. See, if we can own our stuff and we can turn the mirror on ourselves and work on the plank in our own eyes. We can say, yeah, I'm a mess. So you saying I'm a mess doesn't insult me because I already know it. And when I'm weak, I'm strong because my only hope is the grace of Jesus. It's all I have. And it's all I need. Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. Let's own our weaknesses. This morning, I just as we close, I would just ask you this question.
Do you know the truth? <laughs> What's going on in your life that you would just, as you think right now in your heart, and you're thinking over this, and you're going, yeah, I, I know. I have a knowledge of good and evil. I know what, I, what side I fall on. Or maybe you're still confused about what's good and evil, what's right and wrong. Some of our culture seems to be. Do you know the truth of your life? Have you confessed the truth of your life? Have you brought it before the Lord, acknowledging it, not hiding it, not covering it, coming into his presence with it and saying, God, will you forgive me? Will you change me? And then, with a hope to change, have you brought it before his people? Now listen, I think application of this has a great, it's something we need to talk about, right? It doesn't mean necessarily that you go to lunch today and the lady comes up and says, hey, what can I get you to drink? And you go, hey, I need to tell you something. I really need to confess some things before you. She's like, tea, water, Coke, let's not go there. How about, you know? You got to know who you can speak to. You got to know who you can share your life with. This is the point of our small groups. Can you hear me? This is the reason for city groups. Transparent, confessional, honest living, caring for each other. That's what this is about. That's who we want to be. Not fake, not bubbles of public denial. But open, honest, real. That's why you need to be in a city group and we want you to be, to grow in your sanctification in Jesus are there others in your life you can share with? Maybe it's just two or three people that you really trust. Let me tell you what has to happen. You have to have a maturity in Christ to be able to do this. When you confess your sin to people, you have to have a certain maturity in your heart. Being able to do this is, shows that there is a certain maturity in your walk with Christ. But there's also got to be a certain maturity in the people you're telling. They got to understand their own sin and not condemn you for yours, but go, come into the light. I'm praying for you. I love you. I don't condemn you. I'm not, I'm not going to beat you up over this. I'm going to praise you for your honesty. You brought it into the light. And now God can change you. Now he can change you. Where are you at today? You're still making excuses. You're still trying to cover over. What does it feel like to be in the presence of God? How do, you, how do you respond in the presence of God? He's with us today. And I promise you, he loves you. No matter what. No matter how many times. No matter the level of brokenness and the depth of despair and darkness in your life. Open the curtain to your soul. And let the light of Jesus into the darkest places. Would you do that? Know your sin. Confess it. But listen, with the light coming into your life is access so that other people can see the truth and they can help you clean that junk out. Maybe you noticed this morning when you came in, we've got four stations around the church, two in front of those walls and two down here. And we're going to have ushers at each station. And we're going to go into a time of uh, confession and a time of invitation. So what I'm trying to say is if you want to take some time in, in this altar and you want to pray for something that you, you need the Lord to forgive you of, or if you, need to, if you want to stay right where you're seated and, and speak with the Lord about something that you need to have a conversation about, do that. 
And as you're ready to worship through communion, when your heart is in a place where you're ready to worship through communion and you're ready to remember the grace and the story of Jesus, blood shed for you and body broken for you, get up from your seat and find one of these ushers. And we're going to do this. It's called intinction. You'll just peel off a little piece, actually peel off a decent-sized piece of bread and dip it into the juice and eat it. You're not going to drink from the cup. You're just going to dip it. And when we do this, we remember the story and the sacrifice of Jesus over our lives. So Daryl and the band, they're going to come. And I'm going to pray for us. And as after I pray, I'm going to read uh, this text about the Lord's Supper. And then as you're ready, we just ask that you just come. You may want to come and spend time with the Lord. You may want to stay there and do that. But whenever you're ready to take communion as a part of your worship this morning, we encourage you to do that. We've got four stations so that we don't clog up down here or back there. Wherever you feel led to go, that's fine. God already knows. He sees the hiding places. Let's acknowledge it. Let's uncover it. Let's come into his presence so that he would change us for his glory and for our good. Father God, how desperate we are for you, Lord. Lord, we acknowledge today, in this moment, we are sinners. We have broken your commands. We have failed you. We have left. We have been unconcerned about following you, being obedient to you. We are sinners. And how thankful and grateful we are, Lord, for your sacrifice on a cross, Jesus. That you would give up your life to pay our penalty for our sin. Thank you, Lord Jesus. As we take this communion, we retell that story. We reaffirm our faith in the fact that you cover every sin. You go as deep as we need you to go, Lord. Your arm will reach as far as we need you to reach because of your great love and your faithfulness, Lord. And because of who you are, your righteous judge, you are just to forgive us. Lord, may we accept, may we enter into this presence that you offer us today in honesty, God. Your word says that true worshipers should worship in spirit and in truth. And so in the truth today for who we've been and who we are, we come before you into the light of your grace, into the light of your presence, into the light of your forgiveness. And we say, thank you, Lord, that you can forgive someone like me we accept your forgiveness and we worship you through this story and through this time. May we be honest with you now. Not worried about anybody. Not worried about the bubble. God, let us walk out of the bubble into the light and into the truth so that we'll change for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen read this over us this morning as we prepare our hearts. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11 says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Ask our ushers to go ahead and go to your stations. And this is just the time for you to respond to God. What is your response to our faithful and just forgiver and redeemer? As we worship, as Daryl plays for a few minutes and then we begin to sing, you come when you're ready to receive uh, communion this morning. Would you do that?